Hello, and welcome to episode 32 of the Telling the Story podcast, a look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. It's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you without a podcast to step to. It's been about a month since the new post here on the blog, and I apologize. Been traveling a lot for work and for pleasure, but I'm back now, ready for the summer, starting with this best of edition of the Telling the Story podcast. Last month, I was looking through old podcasts and noticed some recurring themes among some of my guests. I wanted to put those similar interviews together into a few episodes that reflect specific topics. Last month, I posted episode 31, Why We Act as Audiences the Way We Do. Today, episode 32, covering the big stories. And by big, I mean the stories that go on for days and weeks, breaking news that becomes national news. Each of my guests here work for a local news affiliate, and they each covered one of the most high-profile stories in the last couple of years. We start with Dave Schwartz. Dave is a sports anchor at Care TV in Minneapolis. I met him last year at the Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia. We each spent three weeks there covering the athletes, events, and atmosphere of the Sochi Games. A few weeks after we got back, I reached out to Dave and asked him to come on the podcast and reflect about the pressure cooker experience of covering an international event and handling the numerous assignments, 15-hour workdays, and everything else that comes with it. Looking back, what was the biggest misconception you had about what that would be like from a, from a coverage standpoint, from a professional standpoint? Is there something that was easier that, than you thought it would be, something that was a lot tougher than you thought? Good question. Um, you know, I, I think the thing that I thought was really going to get me was the workload, but I was so prepared from people who had done the Olympics before me, from my bosses, from your and mine's boss over there, Tim Dietz and David Hunt and all the you know the nice people, Grinnett that we work for, who we love very much, and uh, who were very who were very uh, very upfront about how much work this was going to be. So I felt like I was I was mentally prepared. I don't think you could ever really be prepared until you get into that situation and, and do it. Uh, I, I think like a lot of people, I was worried about my safety and I, I was worried about uh, something happening while we're there, something happening in where we were. And, you know, I think like a lot of people also, I left with the same feeling that we were never or at least didn't seem like we were ever really in any danger of being a victim of a terrorist attack, whether we were, whether we weren't. I don't know. We may never know. But I think those are the two things that before I left, I thought a lot about was, am I going to be safe? And and just what's this crazy workload going to be like? But they warned me so much. I was I was prepared that it was going to be difficult. But I don't think anyone could have made me feel any better about the security part of it until we got on the ground. Well, the workload is is an interesting point, too, because, uh, you know, this was my second Olympics, and the first time I went into it very uh, probably half-blind, half-naive about my ability to handle the workload. And back then I was 28 uh, and in Vancouver and feeling a lot more gung-ho about my own physical capabilities to handle it. <laughs> so I get out there, and I'm I'm just burning myself out. Within about a week and a half, two weeks of, yeah. of getting and probably about halfway through the trip, I was which, just, which by the way, is saying much because your ability to handle what you can handle is, is better than most people, I would say. I'd well, like I like said, working with you for the Olympics, <laughs> I was amazed at how how much you could keep going. Well, and you know, I, I think we all push ourselves quite a bit on a trip like that. It's you know, for me, I know it was you know, gosh, any time that any of us left before midnight, that was considered yeah. an early an early night, and and you 
come back in again at nine ten o'clock the next day at the latest. Um, but what struck me about coming in this time was that I felt better prepared. I felt yeah. probably much like you did the first time, and yet it's almost like running a marathon where yeah. no matter how much you know about how difficult it's going to be, once you're in it and once you're in the middle of it, all the preparation in the world isn't going to stop you from yeah. feeling burnt out to a certain degree when you're out there. Yeah, and I think it helps where when I think you have to have a certain num- a certain amount of big events under your belt. Really, you know, I mean, like, like with, when you guys dealt in Atlanta with with that horrible ice storm and having to pump out content for the amount of hours that you had to. And in sports, it's, you know, covering the big championship games, covering Friday night football. This was basically seven days a week, one entire month long of covering Friday night football for me, which is what it right. really felt like. And so I had an idea. I knew that it was going to be a lot. I think a lot of it I was on adrenaline for because it was just first couple of weeks when we were going, I don't really remember until I would say the first night where I really felt overwhelmed was after the women's uh, gold medal hockey game. And so I, that's really deep into the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, we're almost yeah. done at that point. Yeah. That was when it, it was about three o'clock in the morning <laughs> and my photographer B Chang, who, you know, who's just one of the best in the business. She's terrific. And we were standing out on a loading dock behind the IBC trying to shoot standups. And I could, I was forming the ideas in my head. And they wouldn't make it to my mouth before I stopped <laughs> being able to make any sense of them. And so it was just – it was so frustrating. And then I remember afterwards, the next day I talked with our friend Mark Curtis who's the main anchor in uh, Phoenix and, and a veteran of so many Olympics and just this business. Another great guy. Yeah. And I told him what I was going through and he said, I've been doing this for so many years. He's like, I was having the same problems. And it made me feel a little better because I felt like I was just brain dead. you know. Yeah. And so – but that was really the only time that I remember thinking, oh, man, I'm, I'm having difficulty just really grasping this here. But other than that, you know, we were all in it together and, and it was difficult and it was a grind, but it was so much fun just being around everybody. You know, the, the Olympics were great. The games were memorable. The, the things that we saw were amazing. But what really made it fun was that we were all in it together and we were all just grinding away and pushing at this big goal of covering this together and that was the mo- it made it the most fun that was dave schwartz sports anchor at care tv in minneapolis talking about traveling to russia to cover the olympics of course so often in local news you don't travel to the big stories the big stories fall right in your lap sort of like how eight feet of snow dropped in buffalo's lap last november this became perhaps the weather event of the year a snow emergency and in buffalo no less a city that's usually more than able to handle large amounts of snow Because of this, I reached out to Claudine Ewing, one of my old colleagues and current reporters at WGRZ in Buffalo, the NBC affiliate there. Claudine spoke about the situation and how she approached her assignments. What did you have to prepare yourself for knowing that you didn't know when you were going to see half the newsroom? So what we, you know, you would think maybe a day, okay, but there was a case, I think our news director didn't get in until like, the end of the second day of the storm going into the third and it was like late in the day and then on his way in he went and picked up one of the photographers and it took them around I mean it probably took them over well over an hour and a half just to get to the station so it was one of those situations where people had to go and pick up other individuals but it was a concern because everybody was getting stuck you didn't know where you could and you couldn't go so what it meant for us is that 
we had to prepare. And that's some, one of the things you realize as a journalist and in a town where weather is important because, you know, things start and stop based on weather. Events can happen or they will not happen. Um, we just had to prepare ourselves to work around the clock. I mean, I was literally prepared one day if I needed to work 24 hours or just, you know, of course I got to sleep a little bit. I was ready to do that. Um, you just have to prepare yourself. It doesn't happen every day. It doesn't happen every month, but um, your adrenaline's going, you know, this is the news people are watching. People want to know what's happening. Their state of emergencies, um, city and county officials are giving news briefings, updating people um, almost every three hours. And so I was covering that. Um, and then it also meant because we were so short staffed that at one point I was at a county executives news conference talking about a state of emergency for the entire county of Erie County. And then the next hour, I was at the Thruway Authority because the governor was in town and he was talking about how we're going to bring in the National Guard and where they're going to go and what they're going to do. And so it was it was just so much going on all at once. And then with this storm, you know, people died. This was not just, OK, people are snowed in. They can't get out. There were actually people who passed away. And as a result of the storm. A person found in the car, a person's car stalled, and they called for help, and the help didn't come, and the snow kept coming and coming and coming, and they couldn't get out the car, and so they were trapped. So sad stories like that, things um, like that happened. And then, you know, a nursing home being evacuated um, for concerns of either natural gas leak or was the roof going to collapse. So, so many stories happening. And as reporters, as journalists, we have to remember that when those things take place, that you can't cover everything right then and there. But those are stories that you remember that you can go back to because you best believe, you know, that's November. We're in December now. The holiday season is not going to be great for a lot of families. Families like who, you know, maybe their roof collapsed or families who lost loved ones. Husband, there was a husband and wife. They've been married for, I don't know, dozens and dozens of years. And the mate passed away because he had a heart attack when he went outside. So, you know, a storm can really, really um, um, change lives for people. And then as reporters, we have to be sensitive to that. And just remember, those are also stories that can be told, too. That's Claudine Ewing talking about covering Snowvember for WGRZ-TV in Buffalo. The final guest on this Best Of podcast is my most recent guest, Kathleen Carnes. She's a veteran reporter at WBFF-TV in Baltimore. She was at the top of her game this spring after the death of Freddie Gray and the protests and riots that ensued. It was inspiring to talk to her. She's someone who's worked 25 years in the same place but continues to approach stories with the tenacity of a rookie. But Carnes is no rookie, and here she talks about her experience on this powerful story. And we thought the protesters would um, leave it be for the day because it was the day of the funeral, and that was what the family had requested. Um, and we were in the newsroom and started to hear things on the scanner, and Jed Gamber and I looked at each other and said, Stuff is happening. Let's go. Jed Gamber, by the way, a magnificent photojournalist uh, over at your station in Baltimore. Yes. And we have great, I mean, 
talk about people who are motivated. The great crew guys who are great friends. They motivate each other. They help raise that bar each day for one another. So we're lucky to have such a good staff. So you were saying that you and Jed uh, were hearing the the activity on the scanner and decided it's time to go to work. Right. So um, I made sure our daycare was covered. My five-year-old was picked <laughs> up and uh, jumped in the car. And we knew we were hearing that it was closest at Mandaman Mall. That's not far from the station. Um, so we figured, well, we would run over there. We already had a live truck going to that location. So we were not tethered to a live shot, which was a big advantage. So we could run around and, and get those moments, mic people up. You know, pretty much I know Jed's going to get the great shots. So my job is to keep moving the mic and put the wireless on, move it, get what we can, move on. And um, that's what we tried to do. It was hard because once we had that moment where they were spraying people, and moving people back, um, it makes it, obviously, you weren't going to stay where you were being cleared out. Mm-hmm. So we had to circle around. There was a lot of running through alleys and back ways to keep getting all the action. You uh, you put together a story. It was, it was about two minutes long, you and Jed, that uh, I saw, and it was excellent. I, I shouted it out uh, in one of my posts last week. And uh, and I'll put that with uh, with this link to the podcast as well, so people can see it. And what struck me again was the fact that you were not tethered to a live truck. Most reporters in that situation and photographers are stuck in one place because the coverage is live and nonstop, and you have to provide that as a news station. But what struck me watching your story was that there is real value in being able to have some time being able to work freely and put together a really just tight contextually filled story that captures emotions. Right. And I'm just curious because, you know, there's such a balancing act that newsrooms have to cover there. And I think the instinct is people want to see what's happening as it's happening unfettered. And again, I felt like watching your story made an argument for the opposite approach that, in addition to that, you need these contextualized reports. I think there's two elements to that. Number one, as journalists, you know, those of us who have it, the real passion for it, it doesn't matter that your, ta- your shift ended. You keep going. You go after the story. If it's your day off and you hear of something big, you jump in the car, you go. And you know there's some people who have that and some people who don't. And I think that's part of it. And then the other part of it is, um, you know, we do have the freedom with our boss, Sinclair Broadcast Group, is run by Scott Livingston, who was a photographer, (laughs) who did work on the streets. Now he's, you know, president of the news operation. And so when you say, you know, we got to go, we got to go, and we have that kind of mentality in our... um, in our management to let us go free to do that. Now there were other people covering live shots. So that obviously helped and technically it was our time off. So <laughs> we were free to free to go. But um, I think that made the difference. That's Kathleen Carnes. And we again appreciate her insights and knowledge as well as those of Dave Schwartz and Claudine Ewing. 
That is it for this Best of Edition. We've got new blog entries and podcasts coming shortly. In the meantime, I will leave you with the usual reminder that the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. See you next time.